The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. The 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant was a man of routines. His daily walks were so regular that the residents in his town used to set their clocks by them. One day, he didn't pass by, the first time in memory that he had ever missed. Had he gotten ill or died? No. He had been reading a novel, and he lost track of time. That novel was Emile. Its author was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Who was this powerful thinker, and what was this powerful novel? The story of Rousseau, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here, etc. We've got to move quickly today, folks, because our subject is monumental. A lot of works crammed into this life and a lot of living to a lot of ideas. We will do our best. If I, <laughs> Excuse me. Off to a bad start. If I say Jean-Jacques Rousseau to you, you've all heard of him, no doubt. What comes to mind? Probably political theory, especially if you're an American. We studied him in ninth grade in my civics class, along with Locke and Hobbes and Montesquieu, the thinkers and theorists who were on the mind of those drafting a constitution and starting up a nation. What else comes to your mind? How about the quotation, Man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. That comes from his work, The Social Contract, which might also be a phrase knocking around in your head. Man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. It's one of the great guiding principles of Rousseau and his thinking, the epiphany that he had that marked his life. People are good in their state of nature, thought Rousseau. Society corrupts them. A lot of what he did after that. A lot of his works were designed to demonstrate this in action, argue for its validity, and theorize its consequences. Today, if you Google the phrase, are people good? Those three simple words, the first page will be full of references to Rousseau. Imagine that. Such a basic phrase, are people good? So central to how we think. A question so basic to our understanding of ourselves and our world, we sometimes forget to ask it. Are people good? You read the news and you wonder sometimes. Religions ask this question and answer it in different ways. Governments have to take this into account. So do individuals as they try to divide friends from foes. Are people good? We've had tens of thousands of years to wrestle with that question. We humans, that's a lot of history to try to fight for those spots in Google. And this guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, is one of them. One of the winners. He and Hobbes are the Plato and Aristotle of this debate, the peanut butter and jelly, the Calvin and Hobbes, or Calvinist and Hobbes, we might say. What else comes to mind when I say Jean-Jacques Rousseau, if we dig a little deeper? Maybe that he was Swiss, the son of a watchmaker. There's a cliche, right? A Swiss watchmaker. 
And if he hadn't been a watchmaker, he'd have been a banker or a maker of chocolates, right? <laughs> or Swiss Army knives. My own Swiss grandfather owned a cheese factory. We Swiss have our callings, it seems. And maybe you'd think of the Enlightenment era if I said Jean-Jacques Rousseau, or the myth of the noble savage. Exile, perhaps? A fight with Voltaire? Or, or perhaps that strange period of time when he stayed with David Hume in England and then turned on him, too? Would you think of Rousseau as a composer? Maybe not, and yet he wrote seven operas and many other musical works. He invented a new form of musical notation that didn't catch on. It was probably superior to what we use today, that's my guess anyway, but it was deemed impractical. Think you don't know a Rousseau tune? Hard to hum one? How about Go Tell Aunt Rhody? You know that song? That melody was his. Would you think of botany? When I say Rousseau, he was an expert in that too. And our focus, of course, is literature. And so we will give you the basics of all those other things that I mentioned, his life and his philosophy and all the rest. But we'll focus on him as a novelist and an autobiographer. Let's start with the life. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was born in what we would now call Switzerland. Back then, it was the independent city-state of Geneva in 1712. His mother died nine days after he was born. His father basically abandoned him when he was 10. And then Rousseau worked as an apprentice to an engraver until he left the city of Geneva at 16. That makes it sound like a miserable childhood. And in broad strokes it was, losing your mother, which Rousseau called the first of my misfortunes, and then being abandoned by your father are two traumatic events, to be sure, awful, but those first 10 years are also formative for Rousseau, and they're worth spending a little time on. Rousseau's father and Geneva, and Rousseau's attitude toward Geneva and Calvinism, and toward his father, would be important in Rousseau's outlook on life. It was, for example, Geneva was, where Rousseau developed a few different ideas and a few different passions. Rousseau's father, Isaac, was a watchmaker, as I mentioned, which in some parts of the world was treated sort of like a tradesman. In Geneva, it was an exalted position. And Isaac was not just a resident, but a citizen of Geneva, an elevated status that Jean-Jacques would later inherit. Geneva was also Calvinist, the seat of Calvinism. We're not that long into the Protestant Reformation, really, maybe a couple of hundred years in. Rousseau's ancestor had come to Geneva to flee persecution from French Catholics about 150 years before. Rousseau's ancestors were winemakers for a while and then started making watches. Rousseau's father, a citizen, was well-educated and had many interests, including music and dance, which he taught. He also loved literature, adventure stories in particular. Here's how Rousseau described it decades later in his autobiography, Confessions. Quote, Every night after supper, we read some part of a small collection of romances. By romances, he means adventure stories. A small collection of romances, which had been my mother's. My father's design was only to improve me in reading, and he thought these entertaining works were calculated to give me a fondness for it. But we soon found ourselves so interested in the adventures they contained that we alternately read whole nights together. 
and could not bear to give over until at the conclusion of a volume. Sometimes in the morning, on hearing the swallows at our window, my father, quite ashamed of this weakness, would cry, Come, come, let us go to bed. I am more a child than thou art. End quote. Calvinism took as its key doctrine the total depravity of man. God was good, but humans were, as Augustine had suggested, sinners. Created good and created in the image of God, but thanks to the original sinners, Adam and Eve, humans were now infected by sin. That didn't mean they couldn't do good things. They could be kind and charitable and do God's works. But their will and their conduct, to some extent, would always be marked by sin. Here's where the apt pupil might raise his or her hand and say, Hang on, wasn't Rousseau an advocate for the people are good view? And yes, he was. He left Calvinism just as he left Geneva. He converted to Roman Catholicism, and then later in life he readopted Calvinism because he wanted to live in Geneva again as a citizen. We'll talk about all that later when we get to his works, because his views on religion were perhaps broader than either Calvinism or Catholicism. He also had a tendency to irritate both sides. But for now, let's think of him as a young boy listening to those adventures. From there, his father started reading him Plutarch, the lives of the noble Greeks and Romans, and Rousseau watched his father in action as a political figure with rights and responsibilities. Citizens had these things in Geneva. Geneva was purportedly a democracy, at least among its citizens. Not everyone in Geneva was a citizen. Women weren't, and neither were immigrants. Later in life, uh, Rousseau would argue that women needed to be citizens with full participation in order to make his theories work. Only a small minority of the residents in Geneva, however, were citizens, and even among this minority, the democracy was imperfect. A handful of wealthy families controlled it all, and they delegated to a number of people who would do their will. I imagine it working kind of like the NFL and the commissioner that the owners pay for. And yet... Genevans paid lip service to the idea that this was a democracy. That's a problem for someone like a watchmaker who's on the outside looking in, as many of the artisans were. Watchmakers, engravers, silversmiths, people like that. They were citizens. They were educated. They were ostensibly full civic participants. They were part of the democratic sovereign, again, ostensibly, and yet they had no power. A reformer protested this, pointed out the... That actually what they had was an oligarchy, and he was shot by the government in charge. Why rouse the rabble? And the citizens said, huh? We're rabble to you? We thought we were the voters, the ones in charge. We thought, our, we, thought we were the sovereign. Rousseau's grandfather was among the supporters of the unfortunate re reformer. This shooting occurred five years before Jean-Jacques was born. So maybe we can say that Rousseau was a fan of Geneva's promise of democracy more than the way it was executed, or executing, we might say. For the rest of his life, he signed his books, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Citizen of Geneva. That abandonment, that's a bit of a mixed story too. Isaac had a history of being at odds with the government and authority in Geneva. Again, if we're looking for things that may have formed Jean-Jacques' 
temperament and worldview, here we are. Why was Isaac in trouble with the government? For one thing, he got into a skirmish with some English English soldiers in the streets of Geneva. Then they pulled their swords. Isaac was a citizen of Geneva, but he was the one who got in trouble for the skirmish because the government wanted to maintain good ties with foreign powers. Interesting. Ideals clashing with realpolitik and all of it leading to personal consequences. In a way, this prefigures much of Rousseau's life. So does the exile that Isaac underwent, a major theme of Jean-Jacques' later life. Isaac's second problem was to go poaching on a wealthy man's land, hunting the classic freedom of a man who lives in nature. And here it was, turned sour as the man, the landowner, brought Isaac into the courts. Knowing he would lose, Isaac Rousseau fled to Bern, taking his sister, who had been a surrogate mother, to Jean-Jacques, leaving Jean-Jacques with an uncle who shipped him off to live outside Geneva with a Calvinist minister. Get some schooling that way. Rousseau was affected. He liked church and the ceremonies. They moved him. He even thought about becoming a minister, just as later he would think about becoming a priest. A pattern is emerging. It seems Rousseau liked the people and not the institutions that governed them or judged them. We see that in his praise for artisans. He grew up among them, these craftsmen, as I said, silversmiths, engravers, watchmakers, people like that, treated well in Geneva. He said, artists make pretty pictures for rich people, the idle and wealthy, who pay for baubles. Craftsmen, they make beautiful things for people, things that function, things that have value. These aren't arbitrary prices for baubles. They're things that matter, and Rousseau praised them for it. After he left Geneva, when he was 16, he bounced around for a bit. He was supposed to receive an inheritance that his father spent. He wound up living with a noblewoman who specialized in converting Protestants to Catholics. That was kind of her thing, and it worked. The teenaged Rousseau, who was Switching to Catholicism, found work as a servant and a secretary and a tutor. He took off for Italy, living in Turin and Piedmont. Then he lived in France, and he idolized the woman who converted him. He called called her Maman. And then, when he turned 20, he became her lover. She also had another lover at the time, which confused the young Jean-Jacques, but he went with the flow, so to speak, and he considered her to be the great love of his life. There's another woman, Therese, who's important to the story, but we will come to her later. In fact, I'm going to skip quickly through the rest of his biography now that we've reached his adulthood, because we'll touch on it when we get to his works. He was studying seriously. Now, philosophy, music, and politics. He worked as a tutor and developed his new form of musical notation. He went to Paris to present it to the Academy of Sciences, and they liked it, but they rejected it. They said, keep going, try again. This has merit. We think this version is impractical, but we see that you know what you're talking about when it comes to music. He stayed in Paris for a while, and he met and befriended Diderot the great encyclopedist. 
and his literary career began to take off. He was 30 now. He got a job as a secretary to the French ambassador to Venice. The guy was a bit of a rogue, though, and he didn't pay his staff as much or as often as he should, and Rousseau distrusted government bureaucracy after that. But in some ways, it didn't matter now if he was being paid because he was about to earn his living from his writings. He wrote articles about music for the encyclopedia, Diderot's encyclopedia, and saw Diderot. They were great friends at this stage in his life. Rousseau saw him and debated different topics with him almost every day. And then came the great moment in his writing life. He said it happened when he was on a walk. He was in his mid to late 30s now, and he was thinking about an essay that he wanted to write for a competition. The theme was to explain how the development of the arts and sciences had been morally beneficial. And Rousseau said, well, they haven't been. In fact, men were basically good by nature, and the arts and sciences have been responsible for the moral degeneration of mankind. He won first prize. Famous for this essay, he wrote operas now. He wrote a sequel to that essay, and he wrote operas, turned his hand to writing operas. One of them pleased the king of France so much, he offered Rousseau a lifelong pension, which Rousseau improbably turned down. He became famous among people for that, for turning down a lifelong pension from the king. Who turns down a king's pension? They said, well, Rousseau, he was cut from a different cloth. He turned down a bunch of patronage, in fact, choosing liberty, artistic freedom, intellectual freedom over security and pats on the head. At 42, he returned to Geneva to claim his citizenship. We're on the verge of his major works now and the troubles he constantly got himself into. Rousseau reminds me in a way of those people who you're almost glad to see die in retrospect, that sounds colder than I meant it to. I don't mean I wanted him to die, of course, even though he lived hundreds of years ago. It's not like he's going to be alive today. Anyway, when he does die, that's when you're reading his biography, when he finally dies, you feel like the world can breathe again and focus on his works rather than his life. After his death, he became a hero. His works and his ideas were immortal. He was a hero to the American revolutionaries, the founding fathers, and the French revolutionaries too, their favorite philosopher. During his life, though, he fought with Voltaire and David Hume and Frederick the Great. He managed in the same book to anger both the Protestants and the Calvinists. Quite a trick for someone who was himself fairly religious. It's not like he was throwing the satanic Bible at them or something, and yet he irritated them both. They banned his books, they burned his books, and he himself had to flee. The French parliament issued warrants for his arrest. He went to live on an island for a while, but wherever he went, he got in scraps and scrapes. It's not paranoia if everyone is out to get you. Maybe for things you brought upon yourself now and then. Even his old friend Diderot, had enough of Rousseau later in life. He's false, he said, and as vain as Satan, ungrateful, cruel, hypocritical, and wicked. He sucked ideas from me, used them himself, and then affected to despise me. 
end quote. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the philosopher? So, Rousseau's death in 1778 on July 4th of all days came as something of a relief, maybe not to him, but to an onlooker 200 and some years later, like me and like you. He had been spending time writing in a quieter setting, his health failing from urinary disease. He made it back to Paris. At the very end, he was on a narrow side street, a man in his 60s, not healthy, but but not yet dying, when a carriage came rushing toward him. The carriage belonged to a nobleman, of course, and he had a, a great Dane rushing alongside it. The dog also belonged to the nobleman. And here we are. I'm already on Rousseau's side in this one. I've seen enough wealthy idlers in my day to know that their haste is annoying. Rich people always think they're so important they need to travel fast everywhere. Speed limits don't apply. Pedestrians don't exist. Rousseau had to choose whether to be knocked down by the carriage or the dog. He chose the dog, which flattened him, knocked his head on the cobblestone streets. He seems to have had, what, a, a concussion. After that, he had seizures, and he died a couple of years later at the age of 66. Let's take our first break now. We'll come back with his works of philosophy, and then we'll dive into his novels, and then we'll close with some thoughts about the great hypocrisy in his life, which I haven't told you about yet. And if there's time, we'll dive into his feuds, although I suspect that maybe we'll have to save the, the full story of his feud with David Hume for another day. Let's take our break, and we'll be back with more in the life of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Are people good? Let's start there. Calvinism, which Rousseau grew up surrounded by like a fish surrounded by water, said no. They are not. They are sinners, destined to be sinners, thanks to Adam and Eve in the original sin. They're born bad. Hobbes, writing a hundred years before Rousseau, said, Life in nature is miserable, a miserable state of war. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, 
In short, humans need society, said Hobbes. They need a strong government, a strong ruler, a leviathan. Rousseau was dispositionally disinclined to take that view. No, no, he said. People are good. People in nature are good. It's the institutions that make them bad. The landowning, the government, the power over others. He doesn't accept the Hobbesian view that the people should hand over their sovereignty to a leader or government who will then rule them. That, said Rousseau, is like a form of slavery. Instead, the people keep their sovereignty. Their will feeds into the government. Their will creates and guides the government which expresses the people's will. The government belongs to the people, or as the Americans put it, to we the people. Let's go back to this question. Are people inherently good or inherently bad? Does society corrupt them or does society tame their evil? Who's right, Rousseau or Hobbes? Well, anytime you have a a 200-year-old debate, the answer is likely to be yes, they both are. In part, that's probably the case. There's a reason why we have good governments and bad governments, just like we have good people and bad people, and just like any individual government can do good and bad things, and any individual human being can do good and bad things. We can't look to some pre-civilized state of nature. It's not there for us to examine. There are no records we can consult. And even if there were, it's not clear why it would matter with society and civilization so entrenched at this point. We can't really go back. We have to look at what exists and what's going to exist next. So we do the next best thing. We study babies. We study babies for evidence that they are naturally good, wondering if that will show us that it's society that corrupts us all. Maybe principles like land ownership or cultural influences are what turn our natural, peaceful, and generous spirit into something harder and colder and more selfish. And of course, what the researchers find is a mix. Babies do show signs of being generous and helpful. Those little babies, even before they're one, they will sometimes help someone who dropped food rather than eat it themselves, even if they're hungry. They could grab that little blueberry and shove it into their little mouth, and instead they offer it up to the person who dropped it. That's the experiment that's designed. They take, they, they, they show a baby, a person who's trying to lift blueberries, and then the person drops one, and they see, is the baby going to eat the blueberry? Or is he going to pick it up and hand it back to the person who's trying to complete the task? And sometimes the baby goes ahead and hands it to the person, sending the his or her, the experimenter's heart soaring and sending my heart soaring to those little babies. Good job, baby. <laughs> But here's the thing. They don't always do it. Sometimes hunger wins out. Self-interest. And they will, another experiment, babies will root for the shapes that help the other shapes make it up the hill rather than the shapes that try to push the, the fellow shapes off the hill. And you ask the baby, which shape do you want to play with? And the baby chooses the helpful shape. Of course, this is a bit mixed. You can't ask the baby why you chose the shape. So, of course, you might think, well, the baby, of course, wants the helpful shape to win and wants to play with the, sorry, 
you, <laughs> I'm all tangled up in this experiment. Here's the way to interpret the result that is not so flattering to the baby. You think, well, the, the baby's looking for suckers. The baby wants the helpful shape to play with because the baby wants to take advantage of the helpful, helpful shape. You don't want other selfish creatures around, even if you're selfish. Maybe your self-interest would tell you to surround yourself with helpers so you can take advantage of their help. So it's impossible to know. But I'm comfortable saying that humans are not all one or all the other. I would hope that you agree. Mothers and fathers can be very selfless when raising their children, for example. But that very same instinct can make them selfish when it comes to other people, people outside the family. We have all these deep impulses to help. And even people who aren't in our family. And those are genuine. And yet we are also very selfish and myopic. I don't think that's even really arguable. For every saint, there's a sinner and vice versa. And all of these things live within all of us. So what do we do with that? Saints, if they're allowed to live by themselves in nature, living off the bounty of the land, they'd probably do just fine. But we live among others. We don't have a state of nature to live in. Society has evolved. Individuals can't live on their own now. Everyone is interdependent on others, and struggles are bound to ensue. Power is seized and exerted over others. The rich and the propertied can exploit the masses, especially if they have government help behind them. It's not hard to see Rousseau's father, Isaac, peeking through the background on this. The poacher who went out to hunt on land it was probably free, at one time, open, available to the public, to the citizens in particular. And yet here he was, prosecuted for trespassing, forcing him to flee and abandon his young son. No wonder the son grew up to be against those who build fences and own the land. No wonder the son turned down the king, for that matter. And yet Rousseau would agree with Hobbes, I think, that society will tend toward fights and insecurity. This isn't kumbaya. Even people trying to be selfless will look out for themselves and their loved ones if it comes to that. He just says, let's not take the step of handing over all our sovereignty to the oligarchs or the monarchs, or as we might put it today in the 21st century, the authoritarians. Let's let the general will decide things, the will formed by the citizenry as a whole. Let's let that be the power that governs us, and let's let the governing be ongoing. You submit to that system because in the end you are allowed your freedom. Or maybe I should say you submit to that system because you are allowed your freedom. No higher power exists than you and your fellow citizens. What seems to be a higher power is really just you. The government will be separate from the collective will, from the sovereignty, even if the higher power doesn't do what you want. It's not oppressing you if you've had a fair say. That gives us a framework for how to look at the government and power. If we can make things fair, if we make voting fair, if we make citizens equal, we will all be free even if we don't get what we want all the time. There are a lot of details to be worked out. How do you vote? How do you set up the government to express that vote? How do you guard against a corruption of the government? 
or a bloated bureaucracy or the tyranny of the majority? How big should this city or nation be before it gets untenable? How do you manage to do all of this with with wealth that tends toward oligarchy? How do you do it with would-be demagogues? What if there's war? What if there's civil war? And how can it be freedom if, A, you're forced into this through no choice of your own, you're born into it, it's your system, you didn't select it? Is that freedom? And B, what if you're submitting to what might be a lifetime of this sovereignty, this collective will, not doing what you want? Is that free? There's a lot to work out, a lot of details, but just because Rousseau is right, if he's right, it doesn't mean it's easy to put this into practice. The social contract, his most famous work, can only give us so much of the formula. The rest of it has to be worked out by other thinkers and by those of us who live in a system that's founded upon it. Let's take our last break, and then we'll talk about Rousseau's two major novels, his views on education and his great hypocrisy. Voltaire, when the two were enemies, played some dirty tricks on Rousseau. When Geneva's theater burned down, Voltaire spread the rumor that Rousseau had been responsible for it. When Rousseau was living as a fugitive in England, Voltaire sent English newspapers some of Rousseau's prior statements criticizing England and the English. He was trying to cause trouble for Rousseau. It's not paranoia if everyone is against you. But there was one area where Voltaire was right. The hypocrisy in Rousseau that's hard to explain away. We will have that story and more after the break. We are back. Like Alexander Dumas, Rousseau had a kind of miraculous couple of years. His novel Julie or the New Eloise came out in 1761. And in 1762, he published two works, The Social Contract and the novel Emile, or On Education. Both novels, Julie and Emile, were smash hits. And The Social Contract inspired the leaders of the French Revolution and helped change the world as we know it. Not bad for two years of work. Let's put Rousseau's novels in some context. What examples did he have to go by? We're 150 years past Don Quixote, so we know Europeans know what it is to write long prose narratives. We're even even several decades beyond Robinson Crusoe, which is often pointed to as sort of the first novel, in English anyway, but we're still pre-Jane Austen. Jane Austen is really where we see modern novelistic techniques coming to life. Before then, novels were written sometimes sort of as philosophical essays like Candide, which came out in 1759. They can be, they were mature enough to be playful and self-aware as Stern's Tristram Shandy was, which also started coming out in 1759. But in French and English, the biggest game in town was the fake memoir or the epistolary novel. Epistolary, of course, is a novel written in letters. Those forms, the fake memoir and the epistolary novel, uh, are a way of solving the questions of who is this narrator and why is he or she speaking to me? How did this story come to be told? Inventing a memoir or a series of letters is a way to put 
stories into prose and have action and description and ideas all make sense to a reader. These are events experienced by these characters. Get it? And that's what Rousseau drew upon for his 1761 novel, Julie, or as it was originally called, Letters from Two Lovers Living in a Small Town at the Foot of the Alps. Eloise, of course, reminded the world of the story of Abelard and Eloise, the medieval story of a brilliant nun who fell passionately in love with a scholar and whose illicit affair drove them out of the church. It's the new Heloise in Rousseau's phrase, but the theme is much the same. Love is real. Love is authentic. Passion and feelings are true and must be followed. Society will try to stop you. Society will impose its rules and its morality, but to give in to those rules is to invite your own self-destruction. The church hated Rousseau's novel and put it on its list of banned books. The public devoured it. Publishers couldn't print copies fast enough. They started renting copies by the day, but they ran out of those too. So they started renting copies by the hour. Edition after edition came out. It was as if Stephen King and J.K. Rowling had written The Notebook. Readers sent letters to Rousseau describing the madness they experienced when reading it, the feelings of excess it provoked, weeping, sighs, heartbreak. One reader said the violent sobbing that he underwent when reading Julie cured his cold. A woman on her way to the opera started reading the book and kept reading, missing the performance, yet she still kept reading until she realized that it was morning. Women wrote to Rousseau, offering their love. You have captured my life, they said. I've been tempted. I've sinned. I want to be redeemed. I feel seen. Rousseau was a celebrity. He was delighted by the feedback and the success. And then he got to work writing more masterpieces. The Social Contract, which we've discussed, and Emile. In Emile... Rousseau combines his philosophical views with views on education. Man is born free and everywhere is in chains. Thanks to society, babies are helpful, and then they start learning from others. Good turns bad. So what should we do to make people better? How do we educate those babies and those young people to make sure they grow up capable of being part of this collective will? We want good citizens, right? Good people. So we have to get the education right. We can't just leave them to be raised by wolves. Or maybe that's okay. Who knows? Maybe maybe that's not the example I should use. But let's think about it. Let's think about what we're doing. I should have said we can't just leave education to chance. Emile begins with this sentence. Everything is good as it leaves the hands of the author of things. Everything degenerates in the hands of man. Another translation is God makes all things good. Man meddles with them and they become evil. You would think the religions of the world would appreciate this. God is good. God creates things that are good, but men are flawed. Men are sinners. Men turn things bad. Instead, he offended both the Catholics and the Protestants. We'll get there in a minute, but let's talk about Emile first. The conceit of the book is of a tutor giving advice regarding his pupil, Emile. Let's hear a bit. Quote, 
I have therefore decided to take an imaginary pupil to assume on my own part the age, health, knowledge, and talents required for the work of his education to guide him from birth to manhood when he needs no guide but himself. This method seems to me useful seems to me useful for an author who fears lest he may stray from the practical to the visionary, for as soon as he departs from common practice, he has only to try his method on his pupil. He will soon know, or the reader will know for him, whether he is following the development of the child and the natural growth of the human heart. This is what I have tried to do. Lest my book should be unduly bulky, I have been content to state those principles, the truth of which is self-evident. But as to the rules which call for proof, I have applied them to Emile or to others, and I have shown in very great detail how my theories may be put into practice. Such at least is my plan. The reader must decide whether I have succeeded. At first I have said little about Emile, for my earliest maxims of education, though very different from those generally accepted, are so plain that it is hard for a man of sense to refuse to accept them. But as I advance, my scholar, educated after another fashion than yours, is no longer an ordinary child. He needs a special system. Then he appears on the scene more frequently. And towards the end, I never lose sight of him for a moment until, whatever he may say, he needs me no longer. End quote. That's Rousseau's project. He's going to give us all of his views on education, and there are a lot of them. Then he's going to apply them to this character, Emile, and then we're going to see Emile in action carry those out. The public was transfixed. Here was a way to see how human beings operated, how they should operate, what made them tick, and what if you tinkered with that little watch that they had inside their heads? What if you made them tick? In a different way, what if you could perfect them? And what are those maxims? Let's hear another passage. This is the kind of thing that kicks off the book as Rousseau is giving us all of his ideas on education. As you will hear, he's a wonderful writer, very vivid, very expressive, kind of intoxicating, like all good philosophers are all the popular ones anyway. Okay, quote, Plants are fashioned by cultivation, man by education. If a man were born tall and strong, his size and strength would be of no good to him till he had learned to use them. They would even harm him by preventing others from coming to his aid. Left to himself, he would die of want before he knew his needs. We lament the helplessness of infancy. We fail to perceive that the race would have perished had not man begun by being a child. We are born weak, we need strength. Helpless, we need aid. Foolish, we need reason. All that we lack at birth, all that we need when we come to man's estate, is the gift of education. This education comes to us from nature, from men or from things. The inner growth of our organs and faculties is the education of nature. The use we learn to make of this growth is the education of men. What we gain by our experience of our surroundings is the education of things. Thus we are each taught by three masters. If their teaching conflicts, the scholar is ill-educated and will never be at peace with himself. If their teaching agrees, he goes straight to his goal. He lives at peace with himself. He is well-educated. 
now of these three factors in education. Nature is wholly beyond our control. Things are only partly in our power. The education of men is the only one controlled by us. And even here, our power is largely illusory. For who can hope to direct every word and deed of all with whom the child has to do? Viewed as an art, the success of education is almost impossible, since the essential conditions of success are beyond our control. Our efforts may bring us within sight of the goal, but fortune must favor us if we are to reach it. What is this goal? As we have just shown, it is the goal of nature. Since all three modes of education must work together, the two that we can control must follow the lead of that which is beyond our control. Perhaps this word nature has too vague a meaning. Let us try to define it. Nature, we are told, is merely habit. What does that mean? Are there not habits formed under compulsion, habits which never stifle nature? Such, for example, are the habits of plants trained horizontally. The plant keeps its artificial shape, but the sap has not changed its course, and any new growth the plant may make will be vertical. It is the same with a man's disposition. While the conditions remain the same, habits, even the least natural of them, hold good. But change the conditions, habits vanish. Nature reasserts herself. Education itself is but habit. For are there not people who forget or lose their education, and others who keep it? Whence comes this difference? If the term nature is to be restricted to habits conformable to nature, we need say no more. We are born sensitive, and from our birth onwards we are affected in various ways by our environment. As soon as we become conscious of our sensations, we tend to seek or shun the things that cause them, at first because they are pleasant or unpleasant, then because they suit us or not, and at last, because of judgments formed by means of the ideas of happiness and goodness which reason gives us. These tendencies gain strength and permanence with the growth of reason, but hindered by our habits, they are more or less warped by our prejudices. Before this change, they are what I call nature within us, end quote. We can see from passages like this why Kant missed his walk. It's, a, it's less novelistic to us than a mathematical, precise argument. It's about human beings and their intrinsic nature and how their morals and their sensibilities and their judgments are formed. How is their moral sense formed? Does it come from within or is it created from without? Well, if it's a mix, what do we do with that? It's the sort of book where, if you care about human nature, you'll be marking every paragraph in the margins, paragraph after paragraph of observation about humans and happiness and joy and sorrow, the way they make choices. It's sort of astonishing how much Rousseau has thought about this and how much he's observed and noticed, how logical he's being in setting it all forth, and how much he's, he's systematized in his thinking and how strongly formed his opinions are. He would have been an amazing Twitter follow. It's a little like Aristotle, actually. It's hard to argue with because it's so all-encompassing, so dense. So many times you think you've caught uh, Rousseau in a mistake, or, or there, you think you've found a gap, but then he himself fills the gap or acknowledges the mistake. Hume was a fan of this, which is not easy. To get Kant and Hume on your side puts you in rare company. Goethe was another fan. 
Emile and its sentiments had a universal influence on the cultivated mind, he said. Voltaire was a critic. Of course, remember that Voltaire also hated Hamlet. Voltaire said, It's a hodgepodge. Emile is a hodgepodge of a silly wet nurse in four volumes. But he did praise the passage that got Rousseau in trouble with Christianity. Rousseau basically made what was essentially a Unitarian argument. That's how it sounds to us today, anyway. He said, look, there are truths in both sides, in all these these warring factions of religion. It's probably best to go with whatever the child was raised in. That took him 50 pages or so to set that out. It's among the boldest writing against Christianity ever known, Voltaire said. It's regrettable that they should have been written by such a knave. That's That's how Voltaire put it. As Voltaire predicted, let's, let's paraphrase Voltaire some more because he's so much fun. Voltaire said that uh, Rousseau criticized philosophers just as much as he criticized Jesus Christ, but philosophers will be more indulgent, he predicted, and they were. The church banned Emile. They publicly burned the novel. Once again, it was a runaway hit with the public. Which brings us to Hume. Rousseau was vilified throughout Europe, with churches and governments banning him wherever he went. Local ministers would kick him out. His own pastor denounced him as the Antichrist. He gave a sermon that so attacked Rousseau, the parishioners started pelting him with rocks when he went out for walks. One official came to Rousseau's house and saw so many stones on the balcony, he said, my God, it's a quarry. Windows were shattered. Things were getting dangerous. Everyone wanted Rousseau to leave. Hume invited him to England. Things should have gone well there. Hume was no holy roller, and he admired Rousseau, but Rousseau was under attack from all sides, and when the attacks crossed the channel and started hitting him in England, he blamed Hume for not protecting him more. Hume started out saying that he'd never met a more affable and virtuous person than Rousseau. His phrase was, his quote was, gentle, modest, affectionate, disinterested, of extreme sensitivity. End quote. Rousseau sent for his old lover, Therese, more on her in a moment, and our hero Boswell, who happened to be in Paris, was dispatched to escort Therese to London. Boswell offered himself up for the task, and of course he seduced her on the way, which had always been his plan. And Therese had intercourse with Boswell several times, and then she told him, don't imagine you are a better lover than Rousseau. That's about as Boswellian a story as you can get. The ardent seduction under improbable circumstances, the triumph, and the swift humiliation. Rousseau and Hume were openly quarreling by now due to the strains of articles that were appearing in the English press, some of them invented by Hume's friends, and Rousseau wrote a long letter denouncing Hume, detailing all the grievances he had against him, and Hume read the letter, and concluded that Rousseau was losing his mind. They started attacking each other in print, with Horace Walpole and Boswell joining the fray, among others, and Voltaire secretly fueling the flames, and in the end, Diderot probably summed it up best when he said of human Rousseau, quote, I knew these two philosophers well. I could write a play about them that would make you weep, and it would excuse them both, end quote. And now we come to the hypocrisy. 
Voltaire learned of it and used it against Rousseau. Before Rousseau was truly famous, after he left his lover, the patron, he was living in Paris, where he took up with Therese, who was a seamstress. He was penniless. But later he took in both her and her mother to be his servants, and as he relates in the confessions, she bore him a son. And then at least four more children as well. Therese wanted to keep the children and raise them, but Voltaire, Voltaire, but Rousseau persuaded her to take them to a foundling hospital to be raised. Five children at least. We don't know how many for sure. All of them abandoned by Rousseau as infants. He got Therese's mother to help him persuade her. That's the hypocrisy. Here's a man who tells the world he knows all about education, that he's an expert on the goodness of individuals in the face of a society that will inevitably corrupt them. He knows how to raise children. He says, here's a whole book about education, and he gave his own children away to a foundling hospital, which some historians have said was effectively handing them a death sentence. That's a horrible way of putting it, and I don't know how much truth there is to it, but I doubt Rousseau had much reason to think otherwise, which is the point. Ten years after he insisted that Therese give the first child away, he tried to find his son, and he couldn't. There were no records of what had happened to the ten-year-old boy. It's an unfathomable action for someone who had any kind of heart, and it does make you wonder if his critics were correct. For all his ideas and ideals, for all his ability, was there something lacking in him? Was he a knave? He had been abandoned, but that's hardly an excuse. Having known the pain himself, he might have chosen not to inflict it. So what do we make of Rousseau? Maybe the best way of thinking of him is to think of our dichotomy, the question of are people good, and the statement I made earlier that the answer is, well, yes, and well, no. We take the good with the bad, with everyone, or at least with most people. We try to be better ourselves, and we use the example and the examples of others at their best as aspirational. And we use the examples of other people at their worst as instructional. He told us how to be, and he showed us how not to be. There's another way of looking at this, too. Take Rousseau and Hobbes. You can see Hobbes as pessimistic and Rousseau as essentially optimistic, right? But you can also switch those around. Hobbes says life in nature is nasty and brutish and tends toward endless war. What a miracle, then, that we've managed to survive it with as much peace and goodwill toward one another as we've shown. History is not perfect by any means, but there have been a lot of good that's been done by a lot of people throughout the years, and you might say that things are getting better all the time. Rousseau, on the other hand, says people are essentially good, which sounds more optimistic. It's a good starting point, but then you have to look at how awful society has made them, and there's no end in sight. Rousseau would likely not disagree with that. So who's optimistic and who's pessimistic there? Is it Rousseau or is it Hobbes? And so, too, we see the different sides of the coin with Rousseau. Is it awful to see 
a famous philosopher, a passionate advocate for freedom and equality in education, himself stumble and fall and give up his own children to strangers? Or is it hopeful to see this man, obviously flawed, obviously dominated by self-interest, put such thought and care into writings that went on to have such a profound impact on how we view freedom, how we view authority, how we care about the young. It's a question we can apply to so many authors and historical figures. Are people good? Sometimes, no. But sometimes, yes. There's value in the sometimes. In the sometimes, there's honesty and humility and hope. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. What a great thinker and what a lousy human being, at least some of the time. I'm sort of the opposite, I'd like to think. A lousy thinker, but a decent human being. At least most of the time, I'll take it. (laughs) I hope you can say the same for yourself. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.